We are back. As promised at the top of the program, we have a most interesting guest for you in this segment. He is Tim Cope, who decided to follow in the footsteps of the man we've been talking about, the immortal Genghis Khan. We're very pleased to say that he's agreed to speak to us from his home in Australia. And uh, without much further ado, welcome to Radio Parallax, Tim Cope. Thank you. Tim, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, sort of aspire to be adventure travelers, and I've had some great adventures overseas myself, but, uh, you know, I, I'm a bush leaguer compared to you. What, what made you think you could travel all this way in the steps of Genghis Khan? The first time I was in Mongolia was back in 2000. I was actually partway through a journey by bicycle. I was 20 years old, living a dream with my mate, traveling across Siberia to China, and we were pushing through the Gobi Desert when all of a sudden these amazing horsemen just came galloping over over the horizon to places that of course you could never travel by by bicycle and it just amazed me to think that not only from here in Mongolia has kind of stretched this vast Eurasian landscape you know the Eurasian steppes the home of the horse the home of the nomad all the way to Hungary but that from this region came in some ways, what we would consider unlikely, Genghis Khan and the Mongols who formed the largest empire on earth. And, and I, I really wanted to know who they were because obviously they aren't just the so-called barbarians that we know through hist- from, from a lot of history and a lot of stories passed down through hundreds of years. So, uh, look, I didn't really know if I could do it. The problem was I couldn't actually ride a horse before I started this journey. Uh, but I certainly wanted to learn who they are and the only way to do that was to uh, travel by horse uh, remembering that the first people in history to actually ride and tame horses came from these great steppes and ride as they did into Europe and to see how the environment formed their character and what it would have been for them to to look back at our sedentary world uh, from, from these steppes and I gather that you, uh, you, set out, you set out by yourself with a couple of horses and a dog? Yes, I, I started off with, with three horses. And the, the, the main reason for three, one horse for carrying most of my equipment, uh, one horse for myself, and third horse sometimes for carrying grain and so forth for the horses. Uh, in Mongolia, in fact, I didn't need a third horse. Uh, but I did try to travel with one third spare horse, just as the, the Mongols would have when, when they had each man each man travelling west in those times would have had about three horses each. So you were actually trying to, to, to imitate how the, how the Mongols actually did it? Yes, just without, obviously without the conquest and <laughs> rape and village. But, uh, no, I mean, I, I guess I was, I was really, in, in a funny way, doing it very differently to, you know, the, the, if you like, the warriors, since, since they would have been travelling... At a very, I mean, the, the Mongols are amazing at how fast and how far they could travel. I was really travelling at the speed of a walk, um, at the speed of the seasons. I was travelling more in at the kind of pace that the Mongol nomads would have travelled with, the, you know, with following the pastures of summer, winter, autumn. Um, but along the way, of course, travelling the breadth of the Eurasian steppe from the old capital of the Mongolian Empire, Karakorum, Karakorum that was set up actually by Kublai Khan, and to to the Danube River, which is is historically the the western border of not just the Mongolian Empire but other ancient nomad empires such as the Scythians, 
and and of course the Huns as well. Now I gather you you couldn't possibly have been following an, an exact track across uh, some of that was fairly trackless territory, uh, but you just sort of had an idea of how you're going to get from point A to point B. The, the, of course, the many journeys of Genghis Khan and the Mongols that, that they were incredible, searching as far as you know Baghdad and India and to south and southern China. I I decided that I wanted to to stick to to the steppe, travel what would have been I guess the the corridor for for the Mongols. If you look, if you think of the Eurasian steppe as this, you know, the, like the prairies in between, wedged between the the tiger forest and the tundra of the in the north, and the great mountain chains and deserts to the south. This was kind of like their their highway that they could travel from one end of the Eurasian continent to the other. But no, I didn't really. I'd set take it a step at a time. The temperatures out there do range from minus 50 to to plus 50, and I soon became very aware of why the Mongols would have been smearing smearing animal fat on their faces as they settled up in those temperatures because it's a very extreme environment and, and riding in those conditions is very tough but I realised why of course the, the Mongols uh, usually fought and conquered in winter because the winter gives you on the steppe the freedom to travel uh, in any direction you like because the tough horses of the steppes are able to dig through the snow and find the grass there's no need to find water, so they're eating the snow. They could cross, could cross frozen rivers. Uh, it, you know, it was the and of course winter is the time when sedentary society tends to hibernate and they're at, they're at their weakest. So it became very obvious to me why they would have been travelling in winter. And in fact, summer was much harder. In summer, I travelled through central, what is today central Kazakhstan, where the temperature was very, very hot. Uh, 50, above 50 degrees Celsius, and I was sheltering at during the day in underground huts with, with local Kazakhs, and during the the night, trying to, to to ride. When I was in Mongolia, Tim, I stayed in a gur. I guess they call them yurts in some other places. Very very comfortable, but I guess I guess you didn't have anything that uh, that accommodating. No, I just had a, a basic little tent. The rule of the steppe. One of the unwritten rules of the steppe is, is hospitality, and the, the girls or the felt tents that the Mongolians still do put on the back of camels and yaks in some parts and travel with the seasons. You know, the, the yurts is almost as old as, you know, the nomads themselves. And I came to really love the, the, the yurt, the, the circular feeling, the, the feeling of family, the, the refuge that... You know, the, the Kazakhs and the Mongols say that mountains no, don't meet, but people do, and that's the richness of the steppes, which is to, to spend days out there in this very em, open, wild landscape and then to be invited into one of these cosy little tents where there's a sense of family and colour. It is amazing to think that these people... There's only a little piece of felt, you know, the felt walls of the tents that separate them from the elements and you know it's a, it's a very harsh environment probably one of the most uncomplaining people I've ever ever come across. You really did need those uh, some people's assistance. There's a, an old Kazakh tradition that the host has no right for three days to even ask where where the guest is from. <laughs> In fact they'd ask me where I was from after they'd already invited me for a cup of tea and huh, I got 
I, I was uh, I took I took the bait several times because I'd be out on the steps, uh, a horse rider would come out and meet me, and they'd say, "Why don't you come back for a cup of tea?" And I'd go, I'd say, "Okay," and of course, a cup of tea would mean three or four days of <laughs> uh, celebrations, and they'd slaughter a, a sheep or whatever was going at the time, and you know, we'd share these wonderful, wonderful few days together. And the important thing about hospitality too, it's not really a transaction, it's this mutual feeling of becoming a part of each other's lives and as long as you don't forget them and you know that, that that's the greatest gift that a, a family out there can have and of course the greatest gift for me is to, to make friends and when I set off I had my horses stolen on just the fifth day of my, my journey in the middle of the night and I was very lucky to get two of them back uh, I found them in a herd and the herder told me that and that horse had come to him by themselves that they'd been tied badly uh, but he then explained that a man on the step without friends is as narrow as a finger and a man on the step with friends is as wide as the steps and really getting to know people what? adapting is, is the key to survival out there and I, I had a dog of course to, to, to help me make that doorway into the hearts of people uh, who was given to me as a pup in eastern Kazakhstan, uh -huh. and she travelled with me for three years all the way to Hungary. You found the dog was really helped you make friends a lot, a lot easier. Yes, he was. Uh, in fact, people tended to be more interested in him than I. After a while, <laughs> became very honoured, and he would sometimes get invited into homes and be served up cream on bread and you know food from the table. He became such a, uh, a hero. Yes, he's. Um, Amazing dog. He probably travelled 50,000 k's, I'd say. He'd be off running around the whole day. Uh, we were travelling about 30 kilometres a day, 30 to 40 kilometres a day. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he was probably travelling 60 or 70. Just. I'm, I'm gathering that uh, pretty much along the way you were eating the, the native uh, foodstuffs. Yes, I mean, w w whatever. There's, there's very few shops, obviously, out there, so <laughs> you're taking whatever, whatever comes your way and... And the diet hasn't changed very much in in Mongolia or anywhere on the steppes of Kazakhstan uh, or southern Russia or Crimea or Ukraine, where I travelled. Um, predominantly meat. I became fairly accustomed to you know, eating a bit of lamb scalp or, or lips or ears or um, horse sausage for, for breakfast, lunch <laughs> and dinner. It's sometimes difficult for us to imagine, I think, in the West that you know how you could love your horse and eat it too <laughs> but that's in fact you know they believe that horses really carry you into life they carry you through life and they carry you into the afterlife and uh, a, a horse that simply died of old age and was left to rot that would really be sacrilege you you must have tried the uh, the, the, the I guess the national beverage out there the fermented uh, the fermented mare's milk hummus. Yes, no, it became became a daily favourite in summer. Uh, in in Kazakhstan, I was really taken by shubat, which is the the camel milk. Uh, but yeah, obviously, it was has been a favourite among among the nomads for for a very long time. And, and Genghis, I'm sure, was a great fan. The amazing thing out out there, really, among nomads, is that time isn't money, and it took me a long time to really 
grapple with that because coming from our world where time is measured by you know hours and days and, and, and money, whilst out there time really is measured in grass and water and, and the seasons. And they always told me, Tim, don't rush. Uh, if you're ever going to rush, rush slowly. And I mean, it did take me three and a half years to to, to carry out this journey. Well, Tim, it just sounds like just an, an amazing adventure, and I understand you're working on uh, some, with some film documentarians to put together a documentary that we can all see some of this. Yes, hopefully I'll be putting together uh, a series. One, one film about Mongolia and eastern Kazakhstan, another film about western Kazakhstan and a place I didn't get to mention called Kalmykia, which is on the southern steppes of Russia, a, a Buddhist republic of ethnic Mongols who were the last a nomadic group in history to migrate from Asia to Europe and in fact one of their tribes the Torguts were the, were the bodyguards of Genghis Khan the other part will be about the Crimea and into Hungary and the Crimea is a fascinating place because of the indigenous Crimean Tatars who Stalin accused of being the descendants of Genghis Khan who for hundreds of years took the Slavic people into you know, slavery and he actually had them all deported to Central Asia during World War II, and they've come back to Crimea now, uh, and as a result, there is a, a, a really a, a simmering conflict between the local Russians, because the Russians see them as almost the return of the so-called barbarians. <laughs> you know, in, in, there's an amazing amount of ignorance, and I guess by the end of the journey, I discovered that, of, of course, you know, the nomads as would have been the case on a genius, to have an extremely sophisticated culture that actually contributed greatly to the way our world is today. Well, Tim, I, I, I'm quite certain with a story like yours, uh, it's going to it, we'll, we'll be seeing this in a documentary film, and I hope when it comes out we can have you, we can have you come on again. Okay, <laughs> no problem. All right, well, our guest has been Tim Cope. He made an extraordinary 6,000-mile trek from Mongolia to Hungary in the footsteps of Genghis Khan. Tim, thanks so much. Thanks, Doug. That's it for the show, our 300th. Thanks to Jen Davidson, Dr. Jack Weatherford, and Tim Cope. And thanks to you, dear listeners. It's been our great pleasure to be here this long here on KDVS. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And thank you, Mr. McMillan. It's been fun, and it's getting funner all the time. We'll see you next week at the same time.